What is the Podcast of Matrix? The Podcast of Matrix is your source for podcast media hosting. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. In this podcast, I cover common problems and injuries young athletes may face and ways to keep your kids healthy and as safe as possible while participating in sports. Leading experts in the field will join me to give you the best advice and what is the state of the art in thinking about issues young athletes may face. If you have a stake in the health of young athletes, whether as a parent or coach or even a young athlete yourself, this is the podcast for you. Join me as I bring you the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We're going to talk about return to learn and concussions. And this episode was recorded prior to COVID. We decided to hold off on releasing it at the time just because with COVID and school going virtual, the return to learn aspect of things didn't really seem really relevant at the time the way we would normally think about it. But now that schools are starting up back in session and schools are both in-person and virtual, and we know that concussions are still happening, we thought it would be helpful to release this episode now again to talk more about Return to Learn. I'm really pleased to announce that 10 states have actually subscribed to the TACT program, which is part of GetSchooledOnConcussions.com, which is part of both Dr. Karen McAvoy and Dr. Brenda Egan-Johnson's creation that they developed. And now 10 states are going to benefit from that particular program over this next year. So I'm excited for those particular states and also helpful that they're going to have a reduced burden for teachers to be able to help navigate these kids through concussions. So without further ado, we'll move on to our episode of the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, talking about return to learn. If you have a child who has a concussion, there may be all sorts of guidance you may receive on what to do for your child. Unfortunately, in caring for kids with concussions, I see outdated advice given on a regular basis, and often families rely on recommendations from other parents or online information for their kids. This may lead to your young athlete doing things or even not doing the things that may be of help to them in their recovery, and it may actually slow down their recovery. We will tackle all types of topics related to concussions throughout the podcast, but in this episode on Returning to Learn, we will be focusing on ways to support your student-athlete in the school setting. Welcome to the Return to Learn After Concussion episode of the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host. My guests today on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast are two people who bring a lot of knowledge and are considered national and international leaders in the area of helping kids with concussions returning to school and learning. I've had the pleasure of co-authoring several articles and editorials with these two women, and they've been instrumental in broadening my knowledge in the area of student supports following a concussion, and I know they will be helpful for you as well. Dr. Karen McAvoy is a dually credentialed clinical and school psychologist. She practiced as a pediatric psychologist at both Seattle and Denver Children's Hospital and as the director of the Center of Concussion at Rocky Mountains Hospital for Children. She practiced as a school psychologist for 20 years and as a consultant to the Colorado Department of Education for an additional 10 years in the area of brain injury and neurodiversity on learning and behavior. She is the author of a program called REAP, which is an interdisciplinary team approach to concussion. Currently, she sees adults and children with various severities of brain injury half-time in Fort Collins, Colorado, and the other half of the time travels the country providing training on return to learn to schools. 
Dr. Brenda Egan-Johnson is a doctor of education in the areas of mind, brain, and teaching. She has over 20 years of experience in the area of pediatric brain injury, education, and neurodevelopmental issues in children. She was instrumental in the creation of and directs a statewide program in Pennsylvania called Brain Steps. She has published in the area of pediatric brain injury, speaks nationally and internationally, and has received numerous awards for her work. She has trained almost 3,000 school-based teams in the area of pediatric concussion. Her brother sustained a severe traumatic brain injury when they were teenagers, which led to her passion in this field. Both of my guests are the co-founders of a wonderful online resource for educators called Get Schooled on Concussions that can be found at getschooledonconcussions.com. Welcome, Karen and Brenda. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I think it would be best to start with a discussion about the relatively common treatment recommendation to approaching school after a concussion, that kids should stay home after they feel better, keeping them in a dark room. What do each of you think about that? When I first started, that is what I actually brought in a speaker once for a staff development training, and it was all about how to do cocoon therapy, which essentially is turning out all of the lights, having a student in a dark room, not doing any cognitive activity. But we now know that this is detrimental to recovery. Karen and I both have seen over the years that students who are in a dark room with no stimulation, they tend to become more they start to have more mental health issues the longer that they're kept in the dark room. They have social isolation. Uh, They may experience anxiety. Yeah, I think the research has moved in a really nice direction here, away from keeping kids in dark rooms and isolated, which was where we started, like Brenda said, a number of years ago. And some of the research now is moving towards certainly keeping them, keeping students down and resting for a couple of days, But having some level of cognitive and social interaction, maybe in very small amounts, and the new research is moving towards a active rehab component, which is an earlier introduction of some safe cardio activity, which has been found to be therapeutic for their recovery. So that bodes well for kids who are active to begin with and may need to rest for a couple of days, but then need to get right back into doing some interaction and some socialization and some school activities and maybe a little bit of safe cardio activity to kind of keep their life going because, you know, their recovery may take up to four weeks, so we don't want to get them off track. And I kind of put it in terms of for families and parents, I go, how do you think you would feel if we put you in a dark room and, you know, put some food under the door and say, don't come out until you feel better? You probably are going to feel pretty crummy after a couple of days. And I I think a lot of kids feel that way as well. And, you know, we know that if we have an issue where a kid's in a dark room and we're talking about trying to establish normal sleep schedules, that gets very challenging for kids to regulate their sleep schedule because now their body doesn't know what's night and what's day. And that can contribute to fatigue and can contribute to some additional headaches. It can contribute to just not feeling well in general, just from being in that dark room. So, So that's part of why we try and keep kids out of that dark room. And I, you know, I understand some people's kind of approach with light sensitivity, but I, I rarely see light sensitivity that is that bad that they really need to be in a dark room all the time. So if we talk about... Not to mention that some of those kids who are, quote, in a dark room are bored, and so they're probably not just laying back and doing nothing. They're probably on their phones, or they're doing video games, or they're watching TV. 
which could be just as aggravating early on in the beginning of a concussion as well. So that isn't going to help their recovery. It might actually just flare the symptoms. Well, and it also gives them opportunity to just think about, well, this really sucks. I'm sitting in a dark room. I don't know when I'm going to be able to go back to sports and participate, and I'm getting behind in my schoolwork. So that kind of compounds a lot of that, too. So we see a lot of that come out of that dark room approach for kids or what was called cocoon therapy. So what's what's the typical recovery time that we should expect for kids to get better after their concussion? Well, the new research is saying that 70% of kids between the ages of 5 and 18 generally resolve from a concussion within 28 days, which seems like not a very long time um, when you look at medical conditions, and it has a very, very favorable outcome a month. But for a kid, 28 days or a month still could seem like a very long amount of time. I think the important thing here, though, is that everything is heightened in the beginning of a concussion. The symptoms are more intense at the very beginning of a concussion, and every day there should be slow, steady progress forward every day, every week. And while they may still be somewhat symptomatic for a number of weeks, it shouldn't be as debilitating as it is in the beginning. We at this point, you know, we started with, you know, three to four days and seven to 10 days, and then it went to 21 days. And now we don't really worry about kids having some symptoms for up to 28 days. And I think that's important to stress that with families. And I kind of put it in terms of I never give anybody a specific time frame how long it's going to take them to get better, especially when we're talking about that in terms of an athlete, because they want to know absolutes. You know, I can tell them with an injury to their knee or a broken bone, you're going to be fine in four to six weeks. And I can give them statistics on that, but I can't tell them exactly when they're going to be better, which sometimes is a little bit more challenging for these kids in conceptualizing their recovery process, too. Really, it's a matter of just kind of letting them know, hey, you are going to get better. This is something that may take some time. You know, the vast majority of kids are going to get better within a month and putting in those time frames rather than absolutes like I see some providers do. Also, for those students who aren't recovering, we like to make sure that they are going to see a medical provider because it's so important that they do get checked out to find out, okay, is there something that's impeding recovery? Is there something going on? with the student that is impeding their resolution. And I think that's an important concept because there are things that go along with a concussion. So we do see neck injuries that are in association with a concussion. We see vestibular injuries, eye injuries of how the eye muscles function. So that can have an impact on the kid's concussion, their recovery, and their symptoms. And so that's where that healthcare professional who is knowledgeable about concussions can help you with that. But in terms of just getting kids back into school, Karen, we've talked about on webinars that we've done before about just getting kids physically into the doors at school. Can you explain why that's important to a parent of not having them just sit at home and why getting them back into school is is helpful? Yeah, returning to school is the concept that we refer to, and we're actually talking about kids feeling well enough to get up and leave their home and walk back into a school setting and sit down in a classroom. And that's different than return to learn, which is the process of what the teachers do to support them once they're in the classroom. So many teachers will say, I am very happy to help a student in my classroom with a concussion. But first of all, they have to feel well enough to be here at school. This is the tricky thing with return to school because we, you know, I just talked about how some students may feel some symptoms for up to a month. Of course, if if those symptoms are very severe and it really is 
um, impossible for this student to leave their bed or leave the house, then, you know, that's concerning and it needs medical attention and that child is probably not back at school. But most students will start to feel somewhat better within a number of days or within that first week and they are still symptomatic but able to manage those symptoms and come back into school. So the process of returning to school, a lot of that really is helped by a parent at home who is helping their student to understand that you're going to have some symptoms for maybe up to weeks. How you manage those symptoms with small little breaks, with uh, water breaks, with maybe taking a proactive uh, rest in the clinic mid-morning and mid-afternoon, those are ways for you to manage your symptoms but still be back at school so that you can be in the classroom, you can hear instruction, and that way your teachers can then start to adjust your workload. You know, when I'm working with families in the clinic, we do a lot of education to the student about how to manage that energy to keep their symptoms somewhat at bay. We know they won't be gone, but we don't want the student suffering. So just things like those little breaks would be helpful. And then having a parent really reinforce, you can, you know, you can manage these symptoms. We don't have to necessarily put you on a partial day schedule, or we're not going to keep you out of school until you're, quote, symptom-free, which we know now could be up to four weeks. We want you back to school, being able to work with your teachers, work with the school nurse, and symptoms will come and go throughout the day. Some classes may be a little bit harder because they were harder to begin with, and you'll see more symptoms then. But for the social activities and for the you know, staying engaged and connected to friends, we really want kids to be back at school as much as possible, as soon as possible, and then the teachers can start doing the magic that they do with Return to Learn, which is to adjust the workload. Absolutely. And we see, you know, some parents may run into a different barrier. They may run into schools who ask for a physician note after a concussion, sometimes just to clear the kid back to getting into school, almost like you know, a child who's been sent home with a fever and they need the to be on antibiotics for their illness for or fever-free for 24 hours before they can get back to school. But what should we do in situations like that if, if a school is requiring a physician note for a kid to get back into school? Because I know that this is out there and I've heard this happen at various school districts. Do you have any advice for parents who may be faced with this issue and, and maybe they don't have the resources to actually get to a physician or a healthcare professional? Well, luckily, in our states of Pennsylvania and Colorado, students don't need to be cleared by a physician to return to school. So Karen and I always tell parents the best place for for a student after any severity of brain injury beyond the initial days is back at school, even severe brain injury. We want those kids back at school after they're you know out of the hospital, out of rehab, get them back to school because we know that the classroom environment, and it's in the literature, the classroom environment with peers is where these students need to be to continue their normal socialization and learning. But with a caveat that the school should have training in concussion management so that they are implementing appropriate academic support to manage the symptoms like headache, fogginess, dizziness, fatigue, all those common symptoms that students return to school with. But on the other hand, we have seen parents Not a lot, but sometimes some parents have tried to dictate to their physician, these are the academic supports my child needs. These are the accommodations. 
it tends to become more common when students are getting ready to take SAT tests or standardized tests. I, I sometimes see that happen around those times where they ask the doctor to prescribe academic accommodations, but at the same time, schools do not accept or shouldn't be accepting at face value something from anyone outside the school that states, you know, a student has to have these academic accommodations or a student has to have special education because it's educational law that a school has to determine what needs a student has regarding learning based on a school team's decision. So the school needs to collect their own in-house data and take into consideration any requests being made by a physician for supports or even parents. If parents want specific supports, Karen and I both have seen physicians write scripts and give it to the school that states things like, this student has a concussion, this student needs a one-on-one teacher. Well, that to a school, that will petrify a school. If you turn in a letter to a school or a note to a school that says that, or this student has a concussion, please evaluate the student because the student needs special education. And then the parent gives this to the school from the medical provider, and the schools, their barriers shoot up. Um, They immediately, you know, those are like trigger words because concussions don't typically rise to the level of that severity or need. So it really comes down to educating schools, educating medical providers on concussion management. Mark, I think what's confusing with this clearance situation and and your question here is that there there are requirements in all states for some type of a healthcare provider to clear an athlete back to play. And so people take that language and transfer it over to there needs to be medical clearance to return to school, physically back into the setting, or return to learn, telling the teachers what to do academically when they're in that, in that setting. And that's not true. The, the legislation in the 50 states is about return to play. But where that crosses over is that because we don't want kids to get hit in the head again with physical activity when they are currently symptomatic from a concussion, the one area that schools will remove them from pretty automatically is PE. They'll take a child out of PE or physical play at recess or any school-sponsored sports. If it's an athlete um, wanting to go back to a school-sponsored sport, there needs to be medical clearance to go back to that sport. A lot of schools will want medical clearance for a student to go back to PE or physical play at recess. If it's not an athlete, those families may choose not to see a doctor to get that clearance, and that that becomes, you know, a a difficult issue for the school and the family. But, you know, if if they're not going back to a school-sponsored sport, then they don't necessarily fall under that return-to-play legislation. And then, of course, there is no such clearance for return to school. That's based on symptoms that I talked about earlier, and return to learn is, you know, what does the teacher give you when they are back at school? So I think that's where all the confusion comes from. Brenda and I really like to stress to the teachers and to schools that you are the master of your domain in a classroom. 
if you feel that a student could try um, a little bit more academic work, it's okay to try a little bit more. What they can't do on Monday, they might be able to do on Thursday, and you don't need medical clearance to be able to try that. If it's too much, you can back it back down again. In order for the teachers and educators to be flexible with, because rehab from any medical condition, but definitely from a concussion, is not linear, there are days where they're going to want to try a little bit more knowing the student, and then they're going to back it down if it's too much. We need to, you know, trust the educators to do that piece of it and not necessarily wait for medical clearance for the academics. And I think it's, for some schools, I think they almost treat it as a liability issue that it's not safe for that kid to be back in school after a concussion. Yet I also find that ironic that a school would offer sports for their kids to participate in where the risk of concussion is high, yet they get so concerned about letting these kids back into school. And I've seen that. That's, I think, I think where I've noticed a lot of this is it's, it, at least parents and their kids have told me that the school thinks that it's a liability for these kids to be back in school, which is an unfortunate way to think about that because as as I stress with kids and, and their parents is that we're, we're not going to see kids have troubles with getting their concussion worse by being in school. The brain injury exactly. isn't going to get worse by being in school. So if they get hit in the head again, yes, that can worsen their concussion, but their brain injury is not going to get worse by being in school. It's going to be a problem more where getting hit in the head, troubles like that, than they are making their brain work and doing schoolwork. Just thinking about that makes me um, kind of chuckle to myself because we regularly will bring students back to school after significant, severe brain injury where students have been in comas and, you know, they're back to school and they are medically fragile, truly medically fragile. And I I remind parents, listen, you know, it's a concussion. We have to reframe this. We have to be careful, yes, but we can't jump off the deep end and, and, you know, the hysteria almost. There's this underlying, hysteria might be too, too great of a word, but there's this underlying societal view now in parents, a lot of parents, not all, that if their child has a concussion, and they go back to school, and the school pushes them too hard, they're doing brain damage. Or if the school doesn't accommodate them, they're the reason why they aren't getting into Harvard when they get rejected. So it's it's almost becoming um, even more than what it really is. Agreed. I, I think that's that's an issue. But, you know, I, yeah. it's, it's an issue we're dealing with now, and it's an issue that's not going to go away anytime soon because that, that ship has right. sailed, I think, as far as that level of concern about the injury. And, and, again, we do need to treat this injury with obviously concern, but it's taken a heightened level that I think many of us never yeah. thought it would get to. So it's kind of gotten a little bit out of control, and it's trying to rein that in a little bit with uh, the panic yeah. around it, especially from the school setting. So, But if, if when kids are in school, what kind of things should parents expect for adjustments that are going to be made for their child while they're recovering? Just kind of some simple things that, that may go on in the school setting. So, Because obviously we're not going to be going down the extreme of having no no tests and all that kind of stuff. That's not what we're advocating for. We're advocating for, for adjustments and modifications to their workload. Correct. And what Brenda and I talk a lot about with our Get Schooled on Concussion Materials is we really try to to normalize this for the teachers and for the parents and kind of get away from the, the scariness of this condition and remind people that, you know, they're going to be more symptomatic in the beginning. It should get better over days to weeks. And then we only expect this, hopefully, 
to last weeks and no long-term, you know, impact from it. So having said that, then, the things that we focus on really have to do with going back into the general ed classroom setting. You know, we're not talking, you know, 504s or IEPs. So where do these students land after two to three days at home? They land back in the classroom setting. And the first thing that we ask classroom teachers to focus on is just a soft landing. Um, let the student be there, sitting in the seat, um, helping them to take uh, as many little eye breaks, brain breaks for five or ten minutes in the classroom periodically throughout the day, just so that they have a chance to keep the symptoms at bay and not allow those symptoms to get away from them. Maybe take a strategic rest break in the clinic mid-morning or mid-afternoon, just so that, again, proactively, and we're not letting the symptoms, you know, build up through the morning and then have a massive headache and have to go home and miss instruction for the afternoon. So the first thing is just um, symptom management or energy management to really keep the symptoms at bay so the student can be comfortable physically and cognitively at school. Then, secondly, we just focus on the amount of work because a concussion will make the students have slower processing speed, they will not be able to do as much work as um, they were did before the concussion. So could there be a removal of non-essential work, a reduction of semi-essential work, and an extension and postponement of only essential work and a reasonable load? So that helps students just to kind of keep their learning going, but only on the essential elements, and to keep that grade book populated with some grades grade the adjusted work that you're asking them to do so that their grades are not plummeting into zeros and their GPA is going down over the couple of weeks that they're recovering. And then finally, what do we do about assessments? Could you give a collage? Could they do an oral presentation instead of a test? Um, maybe exempt tests for the first week or so, but begin to eventually start having them try tests again in a number of weeks but maybe the test could be broken up over two days. Maybe the test could be given with an open book. So those are nice little adjustments that we start with, just those three things in the very beginning of a concussion. And the things that help with kids who have attention deficit disorder, they're not processing as quickly either, that would work for a kid with a concussion. Kids who have headaches from other conditions and they're mentally fatigued or they have seizures or they have diabetes, just slowly pacing them, that works for a concussion. You know, we support the teachers doing what they know how to do for many of their other students, do it for a number of weeks with our students with a concussion, and that's generally what's needed to help move them forward over the number of weeks that they are feeling these symptoms. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with Dr. McAvoy and Dr. Egan Johnson to talk more about Return to Learn following a concussion. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is, why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with the Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast? 
If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my growing audience of engaged parents and dedicated coaches of young athletes, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. We are back with the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Halstead, and I'm joined today by Dr. Karen McAvoy and Dr. Brenda Egan-Johnson, and we are discussing returning to learning following a concussion. So it's time for us to communicate about communication. And that's one of the troubles that we see a lot with these kids with concussions is they're not doing a good job of communicating their symptoms to others. You know, I often discuss with families and remind parents and kids that they really need to talk to their teachers about what's troubling them the most. And, you know, that could be that they're having troubles with headaches or they're having troubles with light or noise sensitivity or they're having issues with focus and concentrating or, you know, they're getting annoyed by the group of kids that they're sitting around or they can't see the the blackboard very well. Or actually now it's the smart board, not the blackboard. And so I, I think, you know, one of the things that we have to remember about concussion is that it's not visible to others as far as these symptoms that people are experiencing. And so so if the teachers don't know what these kids are experiencing specifically, then it's going to be very hard for their teacher to make proper adjustments for them throughout their school day and during their recovery. So when we're talking about communication, any strategies that you give to the patients that you see or to students or teachers as far as helping to support these kids the best as they recover? Well, in terms of communication, I think it's important that everybody Everybody jump in as best you can. Um, That's going to be what's best for the student. As a parent, when you have your student go back to school, you want to make sure that you are letting somebody at the school know that your son or daughter is coming back after a concussion. So talk to the school nurse or talk to the counselor, um, and you're going to want to sign a release of information for the school to talk to the medical provider. Likewise, you're going to want the medical provider, if possible, to Sign a release on that end so that the medical provider can talk to the school because the the more that the home, school, and medical providers can communicate, the better able they're going to be able to um, support your student as he or she goes back to school. So those are the formalities about communication. It takes a signature on both ends, and that's easy enough to get. In my clinic, when I see a student with a concussion, I'll get that release of information, and then I'll be in touch with the nurse or the counselor, and what I'm really trying to do is educate the the student while he or she is in the clinic with me to do as much advocating for themselves when they go back to school. Like Dr. Halstead was saying, your teachers are not going to know what you're feeling, and so the more you can express to your teacher that uh, perhaps this class is hard and you're really struggling with it, it's often a math class, and you're going to need a little extra support, you know, then they can jump in and help you. Whereas another class may not be taxing your brain as much, and so there may not be symptoms in a different kind of class where you didn't struggle as much. So a concussion doesn't impact a student the same in every single class. It depends on what's taxing to the brain. 
So it's really important for the student to be communicating what's hard, what uh, modality of learning is working, what is not, how perhaps we can assess the mastery of that material if we're going to do it a different way than other students. So I put a lot of that responsibility on the student, and the older the student is, the more I want that student communicating with teachers, because that's when there's really a very robust return to learn plan in place, when the students and the, and the teachers are working very closely together. And if it's an older student, I often say to the parents, your student will get more gifts from their teachers if they go and talk to their teachers by themselves. It just, it just doesn't go over as well when a junior or senior in high school has a, a parent call to teachers for adjustments. It's just because the school is trying very hard to get your student ready for college and, and advocating for themselves in life. So the more they can do, I think the better that works. And if you have younger kids, then, of course, you're supporting, talking to the teachers and, and coaching the teachers. And what we try to do in the clinic is to do as much behind the scenes as possible. I will write emails or talk to schools about could we maybe remove some of the non-essential work um, instead of making them do all their makeup past work, could we focus on the current work? And those kinds of little requests will help to kind of set the stage for the student to be more successful when they talk to their own teachers. And I think that's important when we're making sure that if you're talking to teachers, that they are being specific about what things they're struggling with. And we don't see that happen often enough. Usually it's just, I'm having a headache. And so it really helps the teacher a lot if they can be more specific, like this was triggering my symptoms, it made my headache worse, or this is what I'm having troubles focusing and concentrating on, or I'm not getting these concepts, or I'm getting overwhelmed and over anxious about all the workload that's piling up. And I think when those kids start talking about that, then that helps a lot more. Because again, as I stress with these kids in the office is that they're the only ones who are experiencing their symptom. Their parent doesn't know for them, even though their parent may think that they do. It's it's really a matter of that, that these kids know best what they're experiencing. And if they can express that, then odds are that things are going to happen a lot easier and be more appropriate for them. So, I just had two populations I wanted to touch on as a follow-up, and that's the little kids. So Karen did touch on elementary school, but we have to think about with elementary school, words like fatigue and nausea aren't going to be used by these little kids or understood by them. So really, for those of, you know, those parents who have younger children and those educators and school nurses in elementary schools who may be listening, concussion symptoms are the same no matter how old you are, however, or can be the same, however, how a student in elementary school demonstrates they have symptoms, maybe um, by crying, by withdrawing, by going down to the school nurse, and not communicating like they do in high school or may do more in high school. So younger kids don't even always have the words to explain what they're feeling. So really playing detective, if you, if you hear that a student's been in a car accident or you know the student fell on the playground in the elementary school, be aware of the symptoms. And same goes for athletes at any age, but even in the high school. Uh, if you're an athlete, you may be, unfortunately, less forthcoming if you're having symptoms because you want to get back to the sport. You want to get back to the game. Now, you know, we're all out there trying to change this in the field, trying to change this and let students know it is critically important that if you're having symptoms, you talk about it, you tell people. 
for your own safety when you do go back to sports. But, you know, we have seen students that don't communicate their symptoms because they don't want anyone to know. I mean, my own children have done that, and I think that they know more about concussion than a lot of kids just because they live with me. (laughs) But, you know, when it comes down to senior year or first string on the basketball team, you know, my son thought that that was a risk he could take. Yeah, it's funny how when you have kids that when they have an injury or something related to something you feel passionate about or deal with it, they are oftentimes more defiant about that. My my kids say yeah. that all the time about trampolines. They say, the only reason we don't have a trampoline in our backyard, Dad, is because you do what you do. And I say, well, yeah, that is that is correct. And so they just have to deal with it, I guess. And so That's right. So in the big picture things, when we're talking about kids that, you know, we discuss kids getting better in four weeks and for the vast majority of kids, but should parents go into panic mode when their kid is not getting better after four weeks? And what should they expect out of the school in that situation? I always look at concussion in two time periods. So those students that are in the first four to six weeks and those students that are beyond that. And for those students who are beyond four to six weeks, there are several things that, that we like to tell schools should be done first a student should be medically managed at that point in time. If they haven't been since the initial diagnosis, they really should be. Also, the school, for instance, school psychologist, at four weeks, we really want them doing a depression screening, anxiety screening, because a lot of students who have gone four weeks with symptoms, they can start to feel or to experience some mental health issues. And we want to be on top of that. That's so important. When students take longer, if they see a medical provider, maybe there's something impeding their recovery. And also at school, once students are out of that four to six weeks, four to eight weeks, we really start to pull back on academic adjustments and academic accommodations. If we see that they're starting to recover a little bit, but then plateauing and maybe starting to recover a little bit and plateauing. We don't want students to be on accommodations longer than they need to be because sometimes it is not necessary. I've had students that I've worked with who were on 75% reduction per the doctor. The school was listening to that for eight months, nine months in AP classes. And that is really not fair to the student, it's not fair to the teacher, it's not fair to the other students in the AP class because the student isn't getting the content at that point in time. We know that the brain doesn't get damaged by doing more work. There is some research now showing that if students are not appropriately supported early on academically, They could take longer to recover, but nothing is pointing to additional damage or anything like that. So really letting students know, we expect you to get better. We don't expect this to last long. It might, but we don't expect it to. And if it does, we're going to be here to support you as a school staff, as parents, as medical providers, by ensuring that, you know, we have this concussion training in our background to let us know how we should be managing this. And there's a lot of great concussion resources out there online for free for 
anyone that wants to learn about concussions. And I know, Mark, you're going to have it on the podcast page, some links to some great sites. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have it in our show notes as far as some links that are reputable sources for families to refer to, especially in looking in regards to this topic. So, But I think you brought up a really good point there as far as making sure that that person is being medically evaluated again in a more prolonged recovery, because there may be some things that that student is experiencing that is in addition to their concussion. So, you know, as an example, many concussions are whiplash effect, and so they may have an associated neck injury that could have some rehabilitation to help assist that person in their recovery and help make their symptoms go away, because it may be actually they're experiencing all their symptoms from their neck injury at that point, or they may have an injury to their vestibular system, which helps control sensations of balance or dizziness. And so if they have those troubles going on, there is rehabilitation that we can do to that. A kid may be developing uh, significant depression and anxiety because they're out of school and they've been feeling crummy for so long and they don't know when they're going to get better and no one can give them a concrete answer for that. So we may start to see some mental health issues that we have to start dealing with with these kids. So I think it's really important that someone is reevaluating and we're not just doing that. And I think that's an important thing for parents to understand is that there is a reason why physicians want you to follow up with them. It's not just because, it's because they want to make sure that things are getting better. And if they're not getting better, to reassess things and see where can we make interventions that are going to help improve your recovery. So I think that's an important part. We talk about with prolonged recovery, sometimes using things like 504s or IEP plans. Obviously, those are things that the three of us know are things that really shouldn't be done early on in the process. But can you talk about those a little bit and kind of explain those in terms for a parent, what what exactly that involves if a kid is going to get a 504, maybe eventually an IEP, and how often should they expect those to happen? If a parent is concerned about their child's performance at school because of a concussion, parents are able to initiate a school-based process for academic supports for their child simply by sending a letter. And a lot of parents aren't aware of that. Sending a letter will trigger the start of a timeline that the school must follow per educational law. If a parent has a child with a concussion and they are concerned about their schooling, they should write a letter to the school, usually the principal or whoever they know at the school, their their school counselor, whoever it may be, date the letter, Put the student's full name, date of birth in the letter, write the parent's full name, phone and address, make sure you sign the letter, keep a copy of the letter, and in the letter you should request that the school evaluate the student. And you need to be specific in your concerns. So what learning, communication, behavior issues is the parent noticing since the concussion has occurred? And if the parent has any copies of any medical diagnosis paperwork from the physician at all, they should include that with their letter. And I always say if they can, hand deliver it to the school, but if not, and make sure you make a copy of it, if not, just drop it in the mail. And once the school receives that, it does trigger a timeline where they will then determine if the student might need evaluated for a 504 plan, or if the student may need a more formal multi-factor evaluation, which is um, a requirement for special education. And I will let Karen talk about those two things. As Brenda is talking about, the letter will trigger the start of these more formalized plans, like a 504 plan or an IEP. But we are suggesting that 
that this not be done at the very beginning of a concussion because we really want to allow a student to have some good natural time to heal, the four to six weeks. If the need for academic supports go on for a longer period of time beyond the four to six weeks, and at the same time the student seems to kind of have plateaued and is not making the gains that it would not be turning the corner on this at, the, at week seven, then perhaps it's time to start looking at that formal process. Or if the interventions or academic supports are very severe that they need this, it could be done sooner. So the process of a 504 plan is simply the beginning of a formal process. And the 504 plan comes from the world of work, which basically just said that people who have a diagnosis of some sort, even if it's a temporary diagnosis, but it's significantly impacting a major life ability, so in this case it would be learning, for example, then the school may be able to give some more customized academic supports. Now we would call those academic accommodations for a longer period of time. Instead of just having teachers kind of informally support, this would start the process of a, a plan where some teachers in some classes might hold their supports for a longer period of time so that we're not constantly checking in saying, are you done with this concussion? Uh, can you take this test yet, et cetera. There is a time and place for a 504 plan when a student is struggling for a longer period of time. Keep in mind this is not just for concussion. Students with other medical or psychological or social conditions might also be appropriate for a 504. But we don't expect, hopefully, in most cases, we don't expect this to be a permanent condition. This is something that we can support for a longer period of time if the school does their assessment and finds it to be appropriate. And then we expect that perhaps when the student has done their vestibular physical therapy or whatever else is holding up their recovery, that that 504 plan will go away when the student no longer needs it. That's in contrast to an IEP, which is special education. So an IEP is an individualized education plan, which a student, again, for whatever medical or psychological or social reason, may need modification of the curriculum. So now this is a permanent condition. It is severe and requires specialized instruction and programming and possibly modification of the curriculum, not just academic accommodations of, uh, of letting them take longer to read, but now they actually have to read a different book. That would be special education. And both a 504 and an IEP require a pretty lengthy process within a school setting. The letter will initiate that request, and the school needs to address the parent's question and concern, but they do not need to find the student is appropriate for either a 504 or an IEP. That's what comes out in the evaluation. If this is going on for a longer period of time, then perhaps the school and the parents, they want to jointly talk about what's the next level of support for the student. A 504 is more common with a concussion because we still expect it to go away, an IEP or special education would be incredibly rare that a concussion would lead to permanent traumatic brain injury or brain damage that we would not expect to go away, but in a rare case that might happen. So these are used very sparingly. So Brenda, you mentioned earlier, you kind of touched base a little bit on standardized testing, and I get this question a lot is should my kid do the state-required testing or, hey, how about 
letting my kid have adjustments for their SAT or ACT tests while they are still dealing with their concussion. So I certainly have my feelings about that. Obviously, if a kid is trying to take those standardized tests, it's probably not going to be a really good reflection of their overall performance level. And I've had parents ask me to fill out forms to make adjustments through SAT or ACT. I've not had great success with those notes actually making those things happen for these kids. What what is your each of your experience on that kind of topic just talking about ACT and SAT and maybe standardized testing in general? I have seen some students who applied for academic accommodations on the SAT and the ACT and their school supplied so much paperwork to justify it. They they supplied a string of educational support, documentation, documentation from the medical provider, documentation from different therapists, but not often do we see that. The only thing I would add to what you've already said, Brenda, is that sometimes it's very disappointing for parents. They believe that if their student is coming up on some kind of a standardized testing, ACT or SAT, that simply requesting some extended time or some accommodations um, will happen. And, and we have to explain to them that the process of approval from the ACT or, or SAT companies generally requires you know, longer standing accommodations. So if you can't really show that you have a paper trail of accommodations, um, you often don't get an, you know, you don't get that just, you know, right now for an upcoming standardized test. So that's really disappointing for parents. And then I'm um, with you, Mark, if, if they don't get accommodations, perhaps this is not the best time to be taking standardized testing. If they could take it again, when they are not concussed, they will get a better score. And so if they had that ability, that would be great. If it's standardized testing for the school, you know, for their numbers and required by their Department of Ed, if it's very much in the acute phase of a concussion, then I might be in agreement that they don't put their limited energy towards that. But if it's a number of weeks down the road and they feel like they can do it, I think it's certainly worth a shot um, as long as, the, you know, they're kind of watching for symptoms. Yeah, one of the first things that I actually will ask families about when they ask me for the adjustments letter for the ACT or SAT is, is this their first attempt or is it their second or third or fourth or fifth attempt? Because obviously if a kid's going into a test and they've already taken the ACT and they're now taking it again for the purpose of trying to increase their score for, say, school placement or college scholarships or things like that, I stress with them again, this is probably not going to turn out in your favor, even with additional time of improving your score, if that kid is still dealing with the concussion. So I just tell them that you're better off just waiting and delaying it. It's not like the SAT and ACT are offered once a year. It's offered, what, I think eight or nine times throughout the year. So, so certainly there is another time, usually within a few months, that that kid is going to be able to take it and probably be fully recovered at that point. So I think that's probably more appropriate. I want to transition a little bit. You guys both created this really wonderful website. It's a great resource for educators. It's a great way to assist students with concussions. It's called Get Schooled on Concussion and can be found at getschooledonconcussion.com, and we'll have a link in our show notes to that. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what brought that about? Thank you, Mark. We're glad that you have found uh, this website to be helpful. Brenda and I are both educators by training, and 
have found that in this world of concussion, which is very much a medical and athletic kind of field, that there were not there were there were some people that were making uh, recommendations for return to learn, but they had not been in a classroom setting for a long time, or that wasn't really their training. And so Brenda and I sort of found each other in this work as educators, feeling like nobody was really speaking for the educator on the specifics of what you know needs to be done as these students return to school. So we we started uh, putting our heads together and finding that that when we are consulting with schools every day, we're talking to schools, we're writing emails, we're writing uh, tip sheets, and over time, you know, the schools were very responsive to the little one-pagers that we wrote. We uh, promised not to write more than one page at a time because teachers are so busy and can only kind of digest one page at a time. And so we wrote very practical tip sheets like, what do you do about tests? Uh, what would a teacher do if a student had missed a lot of the workload? And just one page at a time, just slowly ways to get this information down to teachers. We translated a lot of the language into teacher language so that they felt comfortable with it, and it really empowered them to uh, reinforce that they can work with kids with concussion because they work with kids with much harder conditions, and they do it beautifully every day. So the Get Schooled on Concussions website really developed out of all of the work that Brenda and I was doing, were doing every day with schools. And we compiled all those tip sheets and put them up on a website so that uh, any school and any teacher could go to them and start downloading them um, and start applying them as they saw fit. And then we go around and do a lot of trainings to schools to really support that we trust, that they know how to support kids with concussion better than people who are outside of schools and that return to learn really needs to be school-based and school-directed. Karen and I created this because we wanted to be able to get these one-pagers out. So when questions would come in to me or to Karen, we would talk about it and we would say, how would we handle this question? What would you say? And then I'd say what I would say as my advice to this school. And then we would put together a tip sheet. And they are definitely the hot commodity. They're why people keep coming back to our website because they are information that is currently not available in the research. So it's from those of us who are in the schools working with students clinically and providing answers for schools, parents, and students. And that's an important part. You know, I think educators need those little snippets. I think if you're one of those parents who is active on your school board, if you are active, just one of those active parents, I think this is a great thing to point your schools towards as a great resource for your educators at school to help them in navigating this world of concussions because it's certainly not... Uh, an easy thing to do. It takes a little bit of time, and certainly any help that anybody can get is is good, and this is certainly a great resource for that. So I do want to thank both Dr. Karen McAvoy and Dr. Brenda Egan-Johnson for joining us today. It was truly my pleasure to have both of you on the podcast as my guests. Be sure to check out our full episode library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at HYAPod. 
Until next time, let's work on keeping our young athletes engaged, healthy, and safe. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please review our podcast and spread the word about us. You can find our full episode library at HealthyYoungAthletePodcast.com. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, and you've been listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast.